Support for the gray area comes from Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Support for the show comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you may need Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Yeah, that's right. I'm a big cable news nerd. So I, I walk in the control room late at night. It's totally dark and I'll just look around and I'll think... You know, this, this technology is really powerful. We can do so much with this. Are we living up to it, or are we, or are we just phoning it in? Hello, welcome to the Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Brian Stelter of CNN. He's the host of the show Reliable Sources. Brian's got this fascinating career where as a teenager, he got obsessed with cable news and they began writing a blog from the outside that became the most important industry analysis and tip sheet. Then he eventually got hired to cover cable news and then got to CNN. And now at CNN, he's host of a cable news show that is about the news industry. So there's nobody who's been deeper in this uh, than Brian and has had as much of a fascinating outsider to insider trajectory. But so this is a conversation I wanted to have with Brian because I think a lot about, are we doing a good job? Um, I've been on cable news. I've hosted shows. At some point, I almost took on a show. And I wonder, you know, is cable news good for America, to use the old Jon Stewart formulation? And I think about this on Twitter. I think about it with digital media. You know, what 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 effect are we having? What are our incentives really? What is business and what does that do to the way we make journalism decisions? I had part of this conversation with Jay Rosen uh, a couple months back. Uh, if you guys like this conversation and haven't heard that one, you should listen to that one as well. But but I wanted to, to bring this to Brian, who's kind of in the belly of CNN now and has a, a really interesting vantage point on it. So this was a great conversation. Um, if you want, you can email me, give me guest suggestions, feedback, whatever it might be at Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Again, Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Uh, but here, without further ado, is Brian Stelter. Brian Stelter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So take me back to the beginning. You got obsessed with cable news as a as a teenager? <laughs> yes. Barely a teenager. My first memory is of the uh Gulf War coverage on CNN through the those uh nightscope uh, lenses. Uh, but really, it was in the early 2000s, uh, Bush v. Gore and 9-11 and the Iraq War that made me think a lot about the power and influence of cable news. Power sometimes used, you know, responsibly and, and power sometimes used really irresponsibly. But but so I don't just mean how you got obsessed, but but you started an early blog where as somebody like far outside the industry, you were tracking it almost like a trade publication. Like that that's the transition I'm I'm interested in. That's an unusual hobby for a kid. Well, nobody was doing it. And nobody was writing it. It was a blog that I wanted to read. 
But so, why did you care about that side of it? Um, I, I think it's definitely in 2003 when I was graduating high school and the Iraq war was underway and cable news coverage was bringing the war into people's homes every minute of every day. Um, I was fascinated by the power of cable news, especially relative to broadcast television, because outlets at the New York Times would focus all the time on broadcast network TV, you know, the big nightly anchors, the, the Peter Jennings and Tom Brokaws. But what I was seeing was that cable was really driving the news conversation. It was really actually influencing what the broadcast guys did at the end of the day. And I felt like there was no blog, no website, no outlet covering this, writing about it, obsessing over it. And uh, I was also really interested in blogging as a medium. It was starting to emerge as a medium, and I wanted to get on board. So when we say cable news, there's something weird there, which is that it cable news doesn't just define the medium, which it sounds like it does, but it also sort of defines topics. Cable news doesn't cover as wide a range as topics as, say, the, the New York Times does. What does cable news cover? What is cable news? These days, cable news is primarily a 24-7 talk show about politics and other stories. Uh, I say politics first because, uh, you know, especially in the past three years, all things Trump has been the focus. Uh, but that's that's been through going back uh, decades with cable news, that politics is one of the, the primary uh, topics at play. Um, I think what has happened uh, in the past 10 years, maybe eight, nine, but about, about 10 years, is that as cell phones have uh, entered everybody's pockets, as smartphones have taken over, as we all have access to all the headlines all the time, cable news has had to evolve. Uh, that's why there is no longer a channel called Headline News. Right now we call it HLN. Um, there's less of a need for headlines and more of a need for talk about the news, analysis of the news. I think that's the change we've seen in cable news. That sounds honestly a bit damning. 24-7 talk show about politics and other stories. I mean, you say there's a need for that, but but is there or is there just a market for that and we're mistaking the two? Every day I learn something new when I'm watching these channels. Not just CNN. I learn from Fox. I learn from MSNBC. It's a way to learn about politics. It's also a way to have our national debate in real time. And sometimes that's very ugly. And I think when, when I get viewer emails complained to me after the show, it's because people were talking over one another. Sometimes it might even end up involving a little bit of shouting, although hopefully not. Some viewers like that. Other viewers don't like that. But that is a reflection of what's going on in our country. And I think cable news, especially, uh, you know, the, the, the parts that are controversial, it is a reflection of what's actually happening. No, I don't know. I, I go back and forth on this. And I want to say, as we get into this, I'm somebody who goes on cable news a lot. I've hosted shows on cable news. I worked for MSNBC for a period of time. I so. once wrote a story about that. About what? Which about part? you thinking that you were uh, you know, try, trying to go to MSNBC full time. But it turns, out, and it's turns a, out this was a better route for you. <laughs> and it's something I thought about. Um, and and I go back and forth about whether or not cable news is a reflection of our national political debate or it is a shaper of the national political debate, that it shapes it in consultation with some some amount of audience interest and some amount of reference to what is actually going on in the news, but also a set of other incentives, you know, what can you cover easily, what has conflict built into it, that ends up creating a national debate that is, one, a little bit warped, and two, more conflictual than it might otherwise be. Be that as an agenda setter, cable news is not—it's not neutral. It, it has it has its own agenda, and that that agenda then gets adopted by by the political system. Um, and there's a feedback loop there that I don't know. I don't know if it's good for politics. I'm curious what you. I'm curious if you think it is. I think it's all of the above. I, I think the answer is all of the above. At its best, 
it is a medium that provides insight and inspiration and context. And at its worst, uh, it's a food fight. And, you know, those food fights have been going on for a long time, right? That goes back to the 90s and the days of, of Fox News in its early days. Um, it goes back, actually, to Crossfire. If you want to go back even further on CNN to Crossfire. Um, I used to think that CNN should have a show called Ceasefire instead. You know, and eventually Crossfire was uh, canceled. And there's still an opportunity to do ceasefire. But my point is the medium can be anything, right? You, you say that there's built-in um, uh, incentives, right? Yeah. To be a certain thing. Yes. Well, I'm wondering what those are. You say that cable news has its own biases built in. So I think there are a couple. So one, I think the primary bias of cable news, you have left-leaning cable news, you have right-leaning cable news, you have cable news that creates a an image like CNN wants to do of balance, um, although whether or not you define that as balance is, is contested. But every single one of them has an enormous bias towards conflict, enormous bias towards conflict. It has a bias towards emotionality. So there's a lot in politics that is very important, but that people are not that activated about. And then there are things in politics that are not that important that people are incredibly activated about. And what cable news seems to me to do primarily is choose stories that are going to make the audience pissed. Um, occasionally a story that's going to make them feel really good about their side. But, but more than that, it's stories that are going to make the audience pissed or make them scared. And you see this, of course, in other kinds of news, like local news in a different way, um, where it's very focused on, on local crime. But I think that there is a tremendous bias towards trying to grab the audience, knowing that the audience at any moment could flip to something more entertaining. And when that is fundamentally the way you're shaping your coverage decisions, that's a very different way of shaping coverage decisions. Operating in that intensely constant moment-to-moment -moment competitive environment, it warps you. I remember when I was hosting um, MSNBC shows and every day at 4 p.m. the next day, you would get the Nielsen ratings and it would show you almost minute by minute what was happening in the show. And you'd go back and think, OK, well, what was that block and what was that block? And on the one hand, that was a business. You can't get away from that. On the other hand, it's bad for you. Like it's bad for you as a human and it's bad for you in coverage decisions because honestly, like, you know, one, that's a very noisy data. But also, like it may be that a block that gets 20 percent less viewership was actually the more important block. So, yeah, I mean, I think this I think this is news that is often I think this is a business model that is sometimes only masquerading as news. You're objecting to the ratings-driven culture of all of television, though, not just cable news. And by the way, digital digital media being on Twitter, right? It's not it's not just cable news, but I do think cable news was sort of the the first big jump into this. And and, and the morning shows, the evening shows, uh, mm -hmm. experience this on the network side as well. But it is very visible in cable news. Uh, the reason I, I jump in though about the ratings is that I think this is a day by day uh, thing where there are different results on different days. I am always struck by how often my nerdiest segments uh, are the ones that draw the, the most eyeballs in any given hour. Uh, I don't see minute by minutes, but I do see every 15 minutes. So I see quarter hour chunks. Um, it's not very great data because, you know, you're looking at, let's say, 1130 to 1145. Well, I took a commercial break in the middle of that. So did viewers leave during the commercial? Did they did they hate the guest at 1130? Did they love the guest at 1140? There's a lot you really don't know. And, and I am very careful about not learning or, or uh, learning too much from any you know, messy set of data. But I'm often struck by how the, the segments that I put toward the end, the segments that I think of as the bigger, um, I'm going to call them ratings risks, you know, because maybe the guest isn't as well known or maybe the topic isn't as uh, sensational or, or as politically oriented. That people stay. People do stay for those segments. Uh, but obviously, it's day by day. Every day is different. And you might get a different result on a different day. 
I'm just saying it's not all one way. No, it's not all one way. I mean, my one of my rules about the audience is that when you're dealing with a very competitive sphere where people can make another choice very quickly, there are two ways to appeal to them. One is going to what they already know they want or what you already know they want. And that's the easiest way. And the other is finding what they don't already know they want. You can go in a very high quality direction or you can go in a much more, um, you can go in a direction where you already know what works. And I think a lot of cable news goes in the direction of already knowing what works, like let's make them pissed. And then some, I think, goes in the other direction. I think there are people out there who do this really well. My friend Chris Hayes, I think, really does a lot of great work on his show. I mean, I think you do really great work on your show. But I do think the incentives here are rough. And And a lot of what you're describing, let's be honest, a lot of what you're describing is Fox. You're talking about talk shows on Fox, pro-Trump talk shows on Fox. No, I'm not. I'm I'm not saying that. I'm describing CNN just as much. I'm describing MSNBC too. No, I'm not describing. I think the ideology and the The idea of we're going to make our viewers pissed. That is a Roger Ailes business model that was established 20 years ago. Roger Ailes Nobody at CNN or MSNBC was thinking about that the way he was. But, But you all, we all followed it. Do you think CNN keeps people's blood pressure down? I don't. I watch CNN a lot, and my blood pressure was fine the last time I went to the doctor. But the business model of, of titillate and terrify, right? Titillate and then terrify over and over again. I see that more visibly on Fox than I do anywhere else. I agree Maybe with that. Maybe that's I my don't... own built-in perception. No, no, no. Look, I think Fox is in a class of loathsomeness <laughs> unto itself. But- I do want to separate a bit here the um, ideological dimensions of this, which I think is where Fox really goes in- into a new place, and just the, um, the the need for things to be conflict driven. I mean, when CNN has those nine people on the on the on the screen, like they're looking for a fight. I think they're actually looking for a, just a, a variety of voices in a big breaking news event so that you can go in lots of different directions. I think as an anchor, when you have lots of people at the table, it gives you lots of options. And that's a good thing for the anchor and a good thing for the viewers. Um, occasionally, though, yes, you do want to see the conflict that's happening in society on air. I mean, during 2016, when CNN began getting rid of Republican commentators who weren't sufficiently pro-Trump because they weren't getting enough of that conflict. I mean, that to me was a good example of this business model at work. You're saying CNN doesn't have enough Republican commentators that are critical of Trump? Come no, on. but I, come on. We both know that they got they began bringing on people like Jeffrey Lord. Oh, well, adding additional voices. Yeah, adding additional and getting voices. Ri- and they got rid of some who were critical of Trump, too. Who are, I think who, we need more voices that are actually reflective of the Trump base. Sometimes the commentators on television that are the pro-Trump voice, they're millionaires. You know, they're, they're, they're Washington establishment people that are just playing a role. I actually would rather hear from real voters more often. And, I agree with and that. And obviously less of, the, less of the pundit class. The pundit class is easy. And I, I do – I like what you said earlier about um, th- there's an easy way to do cable news or any kind of television, right, that you can just fall back into. It's easy to do five minutes where just you know talking about uh, the 2020 horse race. It's harder to do something more analytical or something more historical. Um, I oftentimes, I, I sometimes uh, I'm a big, you know, Ezra, I'm a big cable news nerd. So I, I walk in the control room late at night. It's totally dark, and I'll just look around and I'll think, you know, this this technology is really powerful. We can do so much with this. And are we living up to it, or are we, or are we just phoning it in, right? And I think that's the challenge for all of us every day inside these networks and and websites like yours to make the most of the technology that we have the capabilities to use. What do you think the definition in the news right now of newsworthy actually is? I think, I think there's, there's a, a difference depending on the medium and the outlet, right? Uh, 
there's um, every time there's a plane that skids off a runway or every time there are shots that ring out at a school, you're going to see wall-to-wall coverage of those stories uh, on cable news. And you're not going to see wall-to-wall coverage of that uh, on, on the website homepages. And, and that's, that's a good thing. I think diversity in those, in, from those outlets is a good thing. Um, what's most newsworthy you know, to CNN on an evening is different than what's most newsworthy for Vox. And it should be. Do you think we should have to publish, all of us, Vox, CNN, everybody, an actual description of how we make decisions of newsworthiness? I think that's an excellent idea. I think that's an excellent idea. I was thinking back to a night recently uh, that, that I, I helped in a very small way with. Uh, there was a plane that, uh, that, that ended up in the water in Jacksonville. It was, you know, 10.30, 10.45 when the alerts are coming through. I happened just to be at home just watching cable news. Um, through a friend of a friend, I knew somebody who was on that plane, and I eventually got her on the phone uh, with Don Lemon. Uh, CNN was on, you know, for 55, 60 minutes straight covering this plane. Thankfully, no one uh, was killed in this in this crash landing, and 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 mostly all was well. Um, but it was compelling live TV, right? It, w- it would have been bad radio. Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't have made much sense <laughs> for your homepage, but it was perfect for cable news, especially when this guest was on the phone describing what it was like, not knowing if she was going to survive. That's a value for cable news that doesn't. Um, that isn't the same as broadcast or or the web or or radio or print. You know what I mean? And it's an entertainment value, right? That's not a news value. Oh, I think hearing her account of what it was like when the plane was touching down and heading into the river. No, I meant this differently. The the uh, and this is true for a lot of different uh, mediums that there's a preference for us for a story that fits the medium, right? So cable news, right. it needs visual right. stories. And right. so there is a a upweighting of a story that is visual versus a story that is not visual. I mean, you can have a plane skidding off the runway, assuming that, you know, everybody on it is okay, is just not that newsworthy a story in my view. But it is entertaining. It is interesting. And I don't mean entertaining in the bad version of the word, right? It's like these are businesses. I don't think part of the problem, I think, in journalism is that we don't like to talk about this. So I think most people are in on it, so to speak. You're, I think you're describing it as if viewers are unaware of the business model and of the newsworthiness decisions. And Maybe I think they're more aware. I would go both ways on that. I think they're certainly aware. I don't think they trust us very much. I think they have actually a pretty cynical view of us. But I think a lot of the time, um, particularly when we get out of some of the cliches like a plane's getting off the runway, they're not. I think that there is a real capacity to hype viewers up and for them to think that if we are giving something a ton of time, it really is important. I would give as an example this Hillary Clinton's emails. Um, I think that's one way of looking at it. I think that they sign that the amount of attention we give things signals to the audience how important it is. But also the amount of attention we give things is reflect is partially about how much the audience responds to it. And so there can be a kind of cyclical feedback loop here that often ends up blowing stories way out of proportion to what they should get. And I don't think the audience is in on that. I think that they give us, particularly our audiences, give us more trust in that. Well, this goes to the idea of a of a um, a balanced diet of news. If you are only watching television news and you're not reading and listening, then you are not getting a full and complete meal. Um, and, and and I think in some ways the cable news networks, uh, you know, by having these really robust websites, uh, we help solve that problem. Uh, you know, we can do even more to direct people to the web for the hundred other stories that are not going to be on television today. Um, but we've also got to, I think, uh, media companies encourage a balanced diet of news. 
Um, and I don't I don't just mean you know listen to the left and the right, although I do mean that. I mean um, print and uh, and and podcasts and television, right? I think that's right. I think bringing in the audience here is actually really useful. So to me, when I look at the media landscape, if you ask me what is the biggest difference today from 20 years ago, it is the power the audience has, whether or not they know it. It is that in a variety of different platforms from the newspapers and all of us uh, or, or you know, the, I guess, text outlets, we all have Chartbeat, we all have Google Analytics, we all have incredibly uh, social analytics, we have all this real-time data on what the audience is uh, wants from us. Um, cable, the rise of cable news with its kind of moment-to-moment -moment competitive dynamics, Twitter as, I think, the core assignment editor of the entire journalism industry. Uh, there is so much power. There is so much competition from all of us against each other uh, for audience attention and so much ability to see what is happening in audience attention that I think that the assignments are really much more audience driven, although in a strange way than they had been before. And I don't know if it's been a good thing. I think for a while I was very bullish on it. And I wonder if as it all just keeps getting more competitive um, and keeps fracturing, that it becomes something where that kind of inefficiency we had before, that space, was a place where editorial judgment could live and that there is increasingly um, less room for editorial judgment, which is not to say nobody exercises it, but that the um, application of effort and the incentives against exercising it have just become much larger. Hmm. And maybe in television where there's not as much data, maybe there's a little bit less of that pressure then. If the data is more granular on digital, more intense... I mean, I'm thinking about my ratings. I'm thinking about a Sunday morning a couple weeks ago. It started out with 703,000 viewers, dipped a little bit to 662,000. I don't worry about a dip that size. Uh, that's, not, that's not meaningful. Audience came back to 728 in, in the block that I thought I might lose them. And then breaking news at the end of the hour, 713. So pretty, pretty steady the whole time. Some ups, some downs, nothing to overreact to, nothing to overanalyze. Um, I, you know, I'm, and I certainly primetime shows have a more heightened version of this, but I don't, I don't know if I completely subscribe to the idea that, you know, uh, editorial judgment, you know, is, is fading as a result of all the data that we have. But don't you think, do you, do you agree with the idea that the audience has a lot more power? That, that our ability to look into audience preferences shapes the news much more than it did 20 or 30 years ago? Yes, it does. And I look at the nightly news, for example, and I see the number of what I would call local news stories that are given national attention. Uh, and I think that's, that is a result of the audience uh, voting every day, so to speak. Um, you know, I, I find it frustrating that the nightly newscasts have not stepped up more in this moment of a political turmoil and tried to explain to the audience how abnormal this period is. I would argue that's actually a strength of CNN and MSNBC right now, that there's more explaining of what the heck is going on through essays and monologues and, and through panel discussions. Um, you know, I think that's actually a, there's a, there's a, there's a, um, an advantage to cable news in this moment in time uh, because the audience needs to, needs, to, uh, needs some help unpacking all the chaos. I think that's right. You know, I, it is interesting to me, Fox here. I am always struck by how much Fox is a local news network operating as a national entity. How, <laughs> what do you many, mean? Of, how many of their stories are things you would actually expect to see on the local news. Like how the campus much of Tucker craziness Carlson, stuff? Yeah, yeah, like something happened at this one campus you've never heard of. <laughs> or there is a town somewhere where somebody said happy holidays and not Merry Christmas. I mean, there is a huge amount of stuff there that what they're doing is trawling um, 
local news sources fundamentally for stories that if they blow them up nationally can dig into the cultural anxieties of their audience. Fox uses local news and local news stories in a way that CNN and MSNBC just don't. Um, it's a real difference between them. Tucker Carlson often leads with, you know, an anti-anti-Trump story. He'll lead with, you know, uh, evil, crazy Democrats. He'll lead with, you're right, a pretty obscure story that would never lead another hour of any other uh, television and news network. You know, he obviously knows what he's doing. Those hosts know what they're doing. Resentment news. Uh, and that really is designed to piss off the viewers. Um, there, there is not an equivalent to that that I see elsewhere in the in the media environment. I agree that I do think resentment news is something different. I like that. I like that coinage. It seems to me MSNBC often wants to make people angry at Donald Trump. Um, Fox News wants to make people resentful, right? If you, I, I often watch these networks and CNN too, um, and I will think about what is the emotional transaction with the audience right now. Like what? It, like what are they trying to make the audience feel? Not what are they telling them, but what is the emotional substrate of this segment? And Fox News, it is resentment up and down. Like it is, and resentment of people who are often not powerful, right? It is a kind of like an anxious resentment. There really is a, a, a strain of white identity politics on certain shows at Fox. Um, and, and that is right in line with what the president is doing. Uh, it's obviously increasingly hard to tell where Fox stops and the president begins. And That'll remain true for as long as he's in office. Um, where where Fox goes the day after is is uh, you know one of the great unknowns. Um, but for now, it is grievance politics all the way down, or in some cases all the way up. Uh, Fox has remained remarkably strong uh, in the ratings uh, at, a, at a period of time when other channels are fluctuating, when when so much is in is in is in the flux. You know, Fox has a, a hold on that audience like nothing else. And um, I think the, the more that the rest of us understand that, the, the more that the public at large understands that, the better. I always think with Donald Trump that he understood the media really well and that he understood these competitive dynamics of it really well. That what he did so effectively um, was he used primarily, though not only, his Twitter account to act then as an assignment editor for a lot of cable news. And he also called in and did other things. But I mean, he really drove the, he used Twitter to drive the cable news agenda and he used that to drive the whole news agenda. And his just ability to recognize that you could take up all the oxygen by hacking into the definition of newsworthy that is fundamentally outrageous and conflict oriented. That was his great genius. I actually do think the media is beginning to build at least the barest immune system to it. It's better than it was, I would say, two years ago. I'm seeing that on a daily basis. I'll, I'll just... But he understood us really well in a way that I don't think we understood us yet. He set up enemies, uh, convenient enemies and scapegoats. If you think back to the first debate uh, nearly four years ago at this point and what he did with Megyn Kelly, he identified her as the establishment, the elite, the enemy, and turned her into, you know, into that for his audience. Um, quite effectively. Uh, I am seeing newsrooms make changes, though, it, it, not just in recent months, but in the past two years. There's been this evolution. Uh, recently, uh, the president went on a tirade about Facebook and Twitter. He was complaining about Facebook banning uh, alt-right, far-right personalities. Um, I emailed the head of weekend program and I said, hey, I'm around if you need me. And he said, I'm not going to get distracted. You know, the president's trying to play a Simon editor and there's a lot more important things going on. 
so I was glad to have reliable sources that weekend because a show about the media is the perfect place to talk about the president parroting InfoWars and complain about Facebook. But yeah, we don't need to drive every hour and lead every hour because that's the president's uh, uh, choice on Twitter. We should recognize the president's relatively small reach on Twitter. Uh, I, I mean, look, look, he's got more followers than me. He's got more followers than you, but... How he's, dare you? He's not <laughs> He's not reaching most of his voters on Twitter. He's not even reaching uh, a, a big minority of them. Uh, Twitter is primarily a way to reach us in the media and a way to reach his super, super fans. Uh, uh, you know, but if you look at the number of retweets, you look at the number of, of comments, you know, it's that, that is not the way he's going to get reelected. Let me put it that way. Do you think Donald Trump has changed us in the media the way we do our jobs? Oh, I think I think he's changed us for the better in a couple of different ways. I think the press is more adversarial to power and will continue to be post-Trump. And that is progress. That is something that I think you probably wanted to see 15 years ago, right? Uh, uh, less of a cozy DC cliche of, of how the, the media's relationship to the, to, the, to the president works and more of an adversarial relationship. Uh, and, he's, and he's forced us into that by, by declaring war and, and declaring us to be combatants in that war. Um, and by stating so many uh, crazy and inaccurate things that it requires constant fact-checking. But I think that that strain of adversarial um, journalism will continue far beyond, and that's a good thing. Yeah, I would even put it differently than adversarial. I mean, talking about what I wanted 15 years ago, when I got into blogging, uh, the blogosphere, pretty the, the left-of-center blogosphere at that point, was very oriented around a critique of false equivalence media. I'm very oriented around a critique of this kind of media that said, you know, is global warming happening or is it not happening? Opinions differ. Who knows? And over time, I think that that we made a lot of progress on that. I think the media um, is much more willing to call a spade a spade. But I've been really struck um, during the the Trump era of how far, in particular, the New York Times and the Washington Post have gone in that direction. And I know they still get criticized for, you know, they'll say something is um, a false narrative rather than a lie. And there'll, there'll be this kind of pedantic hair splitting over what exact word gets used for when the president is lying. But they are pretty different institutions, the way they write, the way they headline than they were a couple of years ago. Um, and I do think a lot of it is this combination, as you put it, of Donald Trump declaring us and forcing us to be a combatant in this war, but also Donald Trump acting in a way that to cover him uh, with that equivalence began to seem ridiculous. And the thing I just don't know is after Trump, does it snap back? There will be there will be temptations, <laughs> you know, on an individual level uh, to to snap back. But I think the sense of cutting through the BS and that that is the brand of individual journalists and newsrooms to be on the side of the truth and the facts and to stand up for that in a confusing, complicated world that that will stay. You know, you know, look what's happened on CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. More of these monologues, more of these essays. Call them whatever you want. You know, sometimes they open the show. You'll do a five or a ten minute long essay. Sometimes later in the program, you'll do a monologue. That format, which isn't, you know, it's not very complicated. It's pretty easy television to pull off. Is really resonating with viewers because those anchors are cutting through nonsense that's out there. And it's easier to do that uh, with an, a straight-to-camera, looking into the into the camera monologue, than it is through a panel discussion, or or sometimes through a television package, or or certainly through a, a one thousand word news story. The consequence, however, is that the country is even more broken up, right, into into tribes. The sense that Fox is the only channel you can trust if you are a conservative has been cemented in the past couple of years 
Fox itself has changed in the Trump age and become uh, taken more of a hard right turn. So um, can that snap back, I think, is a question. I think that a truly signal moment of this era was that Fox News Republican debate where clearly a decision had been made to confront Donald Trump. I mean, as I remember, it was Brett Baer and Chris Wallace and Megyn Kelly. And this is a debate where uh, Megyn Kelly asked some genuinely hard questions of Trump. And he you know, says the next day she had blood coming out of her wherever. And there's clearly this moment where Fox decided that they didn't want to be on board with this, that they were going to fight him. And then they lost. Like, they, like Roger Ailes bent the knee. And after that, Fox News just threw in with Trump. And to me, that was, that was such an interesting moment in Trump's takeover of the Republican Party. I don't think taking over the Republican Party is necessarily that hard. It's taking over Fox that is hard. There's this great line from David Frum that, that we thought Fox News worked for us. So he's talking about Republicans, and it turned out we worked for Fox News. And then it just turned out there that Fox News worked for this conservative base that Donald Trump understood better even than they did. And after that, it seemed to me that we hit a point of no return because it just became clear that there were no there were no gatekeepers on that side anymore. Nobody had any power, um, at least not that they were willing to use. It was just like who could respond to the most atavistic impulses of an increasingly anxious Republican base the best. And, you know, in a kind of feedback loop with that, who could then amplify those impulses, which would make them more angry and more fearful going forward. And that just seems to me to be the loop we're in. And like you can see it in Tucker Carlson, you can see it in Donald Trump, you can see it in Laura Ingram. But there's a really, really poisonous uh, feedback cycle between Fox and its viewership that seems to me to have in some ways come from a moment when Fox thought there might be a boundary they would place on the debate and then decided mm. actually if they did that, they would lose to the people further to their right. And it makes you wonder if this if this was not a Fox News presidency, if, if the president and Fox were not in this, uh, maybe it's a codependent relationship, a mutually beneficial relationship, um, how where, where we might be in 2019, whether, whether he would be stuck where he is, uh, only playing to his base and only receiving support from 40 to 45% of the country. Could it have gone differently? If the Fox feedback loop was not so strong, um, or or was it was it always meant to be? I look. I think uh, people say the Apprentice uh, was was a key factor in Trump's rise, and that's true. I think his calls to Fox and Friends were perhaps as important or more important because he was hearing from the Fox base every week. He was talking with the Fox base every week, and he was hearing what they cared about every week. And that feedback loop was under construction even before the first debate uh, in 2015. He also is the Fox base. I think this is the thing about Donald <laughs> Trump. Like he is a guy who in another world is commenting on Fox News articles. He's a guy yelling at his television, like watching in his bathrobe, being like, oh, like, you know, that's that's bullshit, man. <laughs> there is something to, to genuine authenticity. And Donald Trump, he is the base. He's much more the base, or at least certainly was, than he is a politician. I mean, politicians go through a very long socialization and acculturation process. They go to the gala dinners. They, you know, go to the American Enterprise Institute meetings. They meet the lobbyists. They get to know the Chamber of Commerce. They meet their peers. They talk to Mitch McConnell. There's a long period of learning what is different about being an elected official in the Republican Party than just being like an angry guy who's a Republican. And Donald Trump never went through that. Um, he was an angry guy who was a Republican, and they took over the Republican Party. And there, there's something to that authenticity that I think has always been absolutely core to his appeal, but is also why he's never been able to escape into the kinds of much more strategic approaches that, that you're talking about. If it had all been cynical on his part, 
he could have made a different decision. But it wasn't cynical. Like his genius, it wasn't a, a genius in the sense of he had a bunch of alternative paths and chose one of them. At this point in his 70s, like this is who the guy is. There just aren't other versions of him on offer. And this is why when Notre Dame is on fire, his first tweet you know, is is what a viewer watching the program might say. Right. What a viewer watching the news might say. Why aren't they flying helicopters? Why aren't they pouring water on the fire? He was reacting as a viewer as opposed to a leader. And, and we see that over and over again. And frankly, I think at this point, most people are are tired of the subject to some degree. I, I, you know, I think there's more interest now in, in, um, in the Democratic primaries and in uh, the Democratic candidates because – Positions are so fixed about Trump. I saw Chris Hayes saying this on Twitter recently that uh, maybe impeachment really wouldn't move anybody's opinion at all because positions are opinions are so fixed uh, that there's not really room to move. I do. I do think that's possible. I've been I've had arguments with people about impeachment, um, but I talked about the, it on reliable sources. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah I was on. Uh, I was talking with you about it. Um, but I do think that the best argument about how an impeachment uh, would differ this time in terms of its polling is it just nothing would change at all, that there's no room to lose and there's no room to gain. Um, but you, you just bring up Twitter, uh, what Chris was saying on Twitter, what Donald Trump was saying on Twitter. Has Twitter been good or bad for journalism? Mm -hmm. uh, Twitter has been, uh, uh, I think, great for individual journalists and probably bad for their newsrooms and for the news product. You know, look, I, I say that because I wouldn't be here without Twitter. I met my wife on Twitter. Uh, I've promoted my work on Twitter for a decade. Uh, I think I think my profile's risen in the business thanks to Twitter. I've met a lot of sources through Twitter and one of the last groups through Twitter, Twitter. It's benefited me individually and it's benefited thousands of journalists individually. But the wrongheaded belief that Twitter is in any way close to real life um, does does hurt the news product. And I understand no one's out there saying Twitter is real life. That's that's not a an argument anyone's actually making. But by living on Twitter, I think journalists come away with the sense that what is being said there is more important than what actually is, right? And we, I think everyone shares that critique at this point, but it's about how to break out of it, <laughs> how to actually account for it. It's funny that you say it's good for individual journalists because I, I, I agree with you in terms of their Well, we careers. haven't gotten into the trolling yet. Well, I actually don't even just mean that. It's There are very few journalists I know who don't talk on Twitter about how much they hate Twitter, number one. <laughs> right, including me. <laughs> you know, and, including including me. you, certainly me. Um, there's the constant phenomenon of the why I'm leaving Twitter op-ed followed by the three months later like i'm back on twitter mm -hmm. um maggie haberman it, it, i recall maggie haberman is there, but, but others have been there too and um and, and there's just like a funny situation with twitter where it does seem to be good for individual journalist brands i agree it's quite bad for newsrooms um but they don't like it either uh, it's like everybody's trapped in this relationship with it that seems very poisonous but the thing that seems to me to be really bad about it, when I started Vox, um, one of the things I talked about with my staff all the time is you don't write for other journalists. That the worst thing to do is to be thinking about your stories in terms of what your peers will think of you. You're writing for the audience. And Twitter, to me, is a place where it so emphasizes that you're writing for other journalists because they are the people you are following and they are your feedback community, that it takes what had always been a bad part of journalism, which is that we would have these editorial meetings and really the people in our heads were our competition as opposed to our audience, and it supercharged it. And so on the one hand, the audience we get on Twitter we don't like because it's full of trolls and we pay more attention to them than the people who are not trolls. And then we're constantly in conversation with each other. And I think it 
it makes the clubbiness and herd-like qualities of journalism a lot worse. And we know that at this point, and yet how do we account for it? Well, I guess other than, I guess, daily conversations to break out of that problem. I don't think we can. Uh, so here, oh, here's my here's my flip. Um, I don't. The reason I've not written a why I'm leaving Twitter <laughs> is I don't think we can leave Twitter. Um, if I thought that the right thing to do was just get off of it, I would. Um, and if I thought the right thing to do was ban it from the newsroom, I'd have at least tried um, <laughs> back when I had that power because I've always disliked it. But I don't think that you can get away from the fact that the political elite conversation, which is, and I'm really talking about political Twitter here, yeah. but that is a, if you are covering politics, that is a conversation you have to cover. I mean, the president of the United States, that is his primary communication source. Like he tweets, like that is what he does um, more than he presidents, frankly. And there, you know, it is where a lot of members of the Senate and members of Congress and and key kind of lobbyists and all sorts of people are, are having a conversation there. And if you decide you're just going to opt out of it, it's a little bit to me like cable news. I mean, look, like if you want to know like my cards on the table, I don't really think cable news in aggregate is good for politics. I just don't. But I also think it's there and you're not going to get rid of it. I've always thought it's terrible. So let's make that, it the best version that we right. can possibly make you, it. You, We live in a fallen world. But I think that, you know, I would go into um, offices on the Hill and every single one of them has cable news playing silently on TVs all day. I think it's poisonous. Like I think it's bad for your. I think it's just bad for the way you think about the world. That's not real world either. You like need time to think. But I think cable news is it is one of the most influential political mediums, and then Twitter is its successor in a lot of ways, and they interact in interesting ways. And so you you kind of need to develop a like a like journalistic standards around this that I don't think we've put a lot of thought into how we do it. We put it on individual journalists in a way that we don't do with other things that are really important to our industry. And I think that's the weird part. I think we have not thought about how to like routinize the way people act on Twitter um, because it's hard. I would say I appreciate when executives at CNN, and I think this happens at other newsrooms as well, will say, that's Twitter noise. Tune out the Twitter noise. You know, Be aware of what the Twitter noise is doing to you, whether that's uh, a bunch of uh, trolls on a campaign trying to, to harass or whether that's um, chatter about a political story that seems important on Twitter but isn't. So you need people in leadership roles to be that gut check constantly. I think your point about congressional office is really interesting. Cable news and Twitter and how they're both kind of glued in on Capitol Hill and glued in in Washington. What, what are those TV screens and you know, computer screens really doing? They're providing a kind of companionship. And that is a valuable role of cable news and a role of Twitter. When I'm just kind of refreshing my feed, refreshing my feed when I'm in a cab or something, you know, I'm spending two minutes, you know, with what I think is a virtual community that I've curated. When Twitter's at its best, that's a wonderful thing. When CNN or MSNBC or Fox are covering breaking news and making you feel a little less worried about the world, uh, providing you companionship, that's a really good thing. So there is a value there. However, of course, as, as you've been describing, it can be misused. It can be, it can be done in an irresponsible way. And that has to constantly be accounted for. I, I think companionship is such an unusual word to choose there. I had a feeling um, you wouldn't like it. Par particularly for the, the Hill offices. That's not – I mean, they're not looking for companions. they got other people in that office. They have an actual real-life good. But do you see what there. I mean about cable news in general, about the, the, the function it serves for viewers? In the same way that morning shows, when you wake up, you know, it's somebody to spend time with. No, this is what I think that it's doing. I, I do think, by the way, that's a good point about morning shows. I do think that is how people use morning shows. Like the 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 function of Morning Joe for in most people's lives is it, you know, it is a breakfast table that you're part of. Right. Um. So I, I think for the audience, that is true. Whether it's good is an open question, but it's true. 
I think for these offices, for journalists too, you're dealing with people who their lives have been spent working out their addiction to information. They, hmm. they, they, they have jobs where part of the entirety of what they have learned is that power comes in knowing something a couple seconds before everybody else does in like breaking the story a couple seconds before anybody else can and being more plugged into what's going on than anybody else is. And I think it takes something in us that is probably already overdeveloped and like shoots it in the stratosphere in a way that's often poisonous. I don't think that the um, Hill offices that take cable news the most seriously are the ones doing the best work is maybe the way I'd put that. And I think that's true for Twitter, too. Um, and and I think that there's like I just I, I actually wish everybody was able to develop more distance from it, which is not the same as abolishing it. But I actually think the problems in these mediums are the worst for the people who are in some ways the most powerful because the way it's working with them, like what got them to that, it, it, it's the best at jacking into their need for information and feedback in a way that can turn them into monsters. At the same time, most people are not addicted to information, right? Most right. people are either overwhelmed by this sea of information and confused by it, or they're ambivalent to it and mostly tune it out and they'd rather play Fortnite on their phone. And I, I find myself thinking about how that gap is probably getting wider because it's easier now to be even more addicted. And it's in some ways easier now to find a lot of other things to go do instead. And maybe in the middle are just a bunch of, of consumers, probably the majority of the public are just confused about what to believe because the president's telling them not to believe anything but the president. And uh, news outlets are, are telling you that he's lying to us every day. It's incredibly confusing for the average consumer. This is an argument I, I, I think is so important that we talk so much about the polarization in media being left to right, but the most important polarization in media is interested, uninterested. Hmm. Like most people just aren't interested in, in political media. They're interested in other things, um, which is totally fine. Uh, but we are so bad. We are so capable of modeling left-right like in our heads. We're actually pretty damn good at it. I know more or less what is going on on Fox. And if I don't feel like I know it, there are all kinds of ways for me to figure it out. My understanding of what is going on in the kind of political impressions of people who are uninterested in political news is extremely weak. My ability to model it, my ability to get good information on it, it's basically not there. But in many ways, these are the people who drive the political system. Like we know how the hardcore partisans are going to vote. We don't know how the people who are insecurely attached to politics are going to vote. And our tendency to assignment edit and write for the interested makes complete sense because they're our core audience, but it also really warps the, our understanding of it. And, and it's something that, I don't know, I really don't know a way to fix this. I don't think this is coming from Alice and anybody, but it, it's a real, I, I do think it's a real issue. It's an argument for more features about Trump voters. It's an argument for more features about non-Trump voters. And it's an argument for more features about people that didn't vote. Which is the group that tends to get the least attention uh, when we go out to diners, the, the cliche diners, and do interviews. Um, the the more you know, but that's it is why I'm not a I'm not I don't buy into the uh, yeah. There's too many too many features about Trump voters. I mean, yes, obviously there should be more features about other groups as well, but I want more of all of those <laughs> uh, to to learn more about them. I'd flip that though too, which is I think it's an argument for more explanatory journalism. <laughs> hey, hey, wait, I mean, who does I, some of that? Yeah, right. It's funny. Um, because I do think that one thing about these voters, it, not just voters, people, is 
they need journalism that starts at the beginning, not at the end. And so much um, of journalism, when you come into it, you know, by the time something like the Mueller report or whatever has reached people, by the time it's something they're paying attention to on cable news, on digital media, we're, we've been covering it for so long that it's really confusing, it's, like who all these people absolutely. are. And- My wife is the best at reminding me of this. And she works in television. She, she's a local news anchor here in New York. And uh, she is constantly uh, reminding me that most people are, are at the beginning when we are starting in the middle. Uh, we are always starting. I mean, I say we, the kind of collective we, and I, I'm guilty of this too myself, starting stories in the middle. And when I'm writing intros for my Sunday show, I try to be conscious of this. And I try to step a couple steps further back and, and tell a bigger story. But it goes against all of the kind of the built-in um, norms of, of this news system. We are used to writing stories one day at a time. It's what we, that's actually what we're taught in journalism school. <laughs> I'm not trying to not trying to blame the professors, but yeah, yeah. I mean, incremental news makes sense. It's not a crazy way to structure it. Um, the the question is like, what kind of in on ramps do you give people? Right? If they decide they want to start learning about something, like how do you let them do that? How do you how do you make that easy for them? I mean, that's fundamentally the purpose of of our explainers, but but it's it's the purpose of a lot of work that other people do too. But I, I do think that that stuff is really hard. You know, I'm writing a book about polarization and identity and all this stuff. Um, and it has a media chapter. And some of the research I've been looking at for that, it goes exactly to something you were saying a couple minutes ago. There's a guy named Marcus Pryor, who's a political scientist. And he did this great paper back at the dawn of internet news. So this was back when a lot of people didn't have cable and relatively, and people were just beginning to get internet. And so he looked at households with cable and internet and how did they differ in political knowledge. And and I I thought this was so interesting. What he found is that overall, in aggregate, political knowledge didn't change. The the households that had access to all this more, uh, the households that had access to this great increase in political information did not on average become more knowledgeable. What did happen is knowledge began to uh, segregate by interest. So if you had cable and you had internet, then if you were interested in politics, you had a lot more knowledge about it. And if you were not, you had a lot less. Whereas before, when you didn't have as many choices and you just had the channels on all day, everybody got a bit of politics, but not that much. (laughs) And so you had a kind of, you had a bigger middle of knowledge before it all got um, stratified by choice. I think about that a lot. The haves and the have-nots. You're saying that's widened. Hugely. Hugely. Which makes sense, right? So should there be a news channel for for the most casual consumers, for the folks that are mildly interested but uh, uh, don't know all the names of Robert Mueller's uh, uh, team of lawyers? But what's the business model for that channel? Right. Who's going to watch it? I, I, the reason I bring this up is I, I oftentimes think about, okay, what can we build? What can we make? What, why am I so reliant on Twitter? What can I build? You know, if what, if what I want from Twitter, for example, is a, uh, a way to get instant feedback from the audience so that when I'm in a commercial break on CNN, I can take a look and see what viewers are thinking and what questions they might have for you, what, 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 what uh, perspectives they're adding. There must be other ways to have that besides Twitter, right? Now I happen to work for a phone company. Can, can that happen through the phone company? Can that happen through text message? Can that happen through an app? Uh, th- these are just things I start to think about when we, when we start to unpack these problems. 
are there solutions that are not reliant on these giant tech platforms that are all under so much scrutiny? Support for the gray area comes from Greenlight. Having tough conversations with your kids is just part of being a parent. And sure, those convos might seem a bit intimidating, but they can also set your child up to go out there on their own. And one of those big talks should probably involve money, how to be responsible with it, how to earn it, and that it's not infinite. If you're looking for a way to put those lessons into action, you might want to check out Greenlight. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. You can send your kids instant money transfers, get real-time notifications of spending, manage chores, and automate allowance. My kid is only four, but a colleague of mine here in the Vox Media family uses the Greenlight card with his two boys, and he loves it. Plus, the Greenlight app also comes with games that teach kids money skills in a fun, memorable way. You can sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb, arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushion footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. Are you optimistic about journalism as a business? Um, as we're talking, Disney just wrote down its investment of vice to basically nothing. Are you optimistic about new media? I can't help but be optimistic. So I, I try to look for uh, look for positive signs. Um, a lot of what vice does isn't journalism. That's not a dig on them. Uh, it just means that they're a, they're a content factory producing a lot of entertainment and uh, you know a lot of a lot of advertising. Um, I would hope that the the Vice News portion uh, can be as strong as possible, and you know, through its deals with HBO and others uh, to to get on television. Um, but it is staggering to see Disney essentially say that Vice Media is that they, their investment in Vice Media is worthless. Um, Which we should say, like that has to do with the valuation they invested in. They're not saying right. Vice Media is worth zero dollars, but they invested in, I believe, it a multi-billion-dollar valuation, and they're saying that was a mistake. Right, that they made a bad bet, and uh, and Disney's big enough to uh, to swallow that and and to move on. There are huge media companies that are successfully uh, growing newsrooms right now, you know, and and, and I say that, um, you know, from a CNN perspective, I, I look at, uh, you know, other big media companies that are that are um, uh, doing a lot better than I would have maybe thought twenty years ago. Look, if we had said in nineteen ninety nine, will the evening newscasts still be on the air on the broadcast networks? 
Now, look, I have a lot of critiques of the broadcast news networks, uh, the nightly newscasts, but they're still alive and thriving in 2019. Um, so these old-fashioned business models revolving around TV ads and subscriptions uh, are, are still functioning well in a number of different places. Um, obviously, that's not nearly as true on the local level, and it's it's terrifying to see the cuts uh, at local and regional outlets. Um, but I do see a lot of signs that uh, this combination of subscription and advertising and live events is still functioning well at a number of businesses. You know, it's easy to pull out examples of, of failures as well. But um, people are paying for news. A decent number of people are paying for news directly, and and others are paying through their cable bills. I do think that is the most encouraging of the trends right now. But I also think that in terms of people paying directly for news, I think the cable bills are a little bit different. I'm not sure how many organizations can support a big newsroom on that. And and, and so I don't mean here that there – I think there are a lot of organizations that can have subscriptions as a modest revenue stream, a couple million dollars a year. Um, how many can do what the New York Times is doing and their subscription revenue can get them to where they can finance really, really high-quality journalism off of it in a big, high-scale way? I think it's going to be relatively thin there. Um, so I'm I'm a little worried about how much you can rely on that. I mean, my story the past couple of years, which is a grimmer one, um, and what I'll say is that Vox Media has done really well and Vox has done really well. So in a lot of ways, I should have a lot of reason to be optimistic. But something that I've seen in the industry as a whole is that we had a couple of ideas that failed. Um, there was the idea that as brand advertising moved online, right, as like Lexus and Coca-Cola had to do digital advertising, that they would need our skills and knowledge to do it. So we all created brand advertising studios. We have Box Creative and the New York Times has it. I mean, everybody's got them. Um, BuzzFeed was very famous in this area. And it's it's a good revenue stream, but we don't own brand advertising, right? The big advertising agencies came online and also just Facebook and Google ate a lot of that up. And then there was the idea that we're going to work with these platforms like Facebook and Google and we're going to have unbelievable scale, scale like nobody's ever seen before. You know, like we had a video at Vox, an explain on Syrian civil war that got, I think, something like 150 million views, most of those through Facebook. But Facebook never permitted monetization of its video side in any real way. And this happened again and again and again. And so there was no real ability to monetize that scale. You see it on YouTube, too. And I think this came quicker for text, but I do think YouTube and some other things are really coming for cable. I mean, when you look at the tendencies of young people. And so it isn't that I don't think you're going to be able to support like some winner businesses. You know, like there'll be players in here who are doing great. Uh, there'll be players in here owned by billionaires. I mean, there are a lot of ways to do it. But in terms of a business, a lot of different kinds of organizations can survive on and be able to do the kind of journalism we hope they'll be able to do. I'm more worried. I mean, I think the business is getting more normal again. We're just using our traditional revenue streams, but with the platforms taking a huge middleman cut that we didn't have to worry about before. Which is why I go back to what can we be building so that Vox Media owns the next Twitter? Maybe that's too pie in the sky. Maybe that maybe, I, maybe I'm too hopeful. <laughs> but I that's what I'm wondering. That's what I'm actively wondering these days is what what can we do to to control more of our own futures? What how can we create subscription revenue models that are so easy and and so convenient and and provide so much benefit to people's lives that they'll keep paying? You know, right now I pay for my Nest Cam, right? Because it gives me safety and security. Well, CNN also provides a function of making sure you're safe and letting you know where is not safe. That's a key kind of tenant of cable news and of local television news and of and of digital media. 
what do we do with that? How do we, you know, how do how do we how do we make sure that people uh, can connect to that? That, that? That's what I'm wondering. For example, uh, gaming is another thing I think about a lot. Um, people are more than willing to pay for games in the app store, pay for upgrades in the app stores. What can we be doing to to tap into those sorts of opportunities? Maybe I'm too pie in the sky, but I'm I'm looking for you know I'm looking for those answers. Let me let me pull you down actually because <laughs> I'm I'm uh -oh. actually finding this part more depressing than I was expecting to. Like give me give me your give me your analysis. I mean you've been looking at the media business for a long time. Like don't don't tell me about what we may be able to build. Like where do you think we are now? Well that that that's the issue is that I don't see a lot of this actually happening. And and maybe and maybe my eyes are are blinded and maybe it's all happening and hopefully people who are listening to this will tell me about the innovative products and, and projects that they're building as we speak. Um, but I see a, a lot of people trying to mine for gold in the podcast space, and I'm not entirely sure that that's going to be a lot of billion-dollar businesses. Why? Oh, I don't know. Maybe I don't understand the business well enough. To me, it's a very intimate medium, which I understand means you can read ads and, and connect people one-on-one, uh, -on -one, but um, hard, to, hard for me to see Luminary, for example, scaling and uh, – and achieving, you know, Netflix type uh, growth. What am I missing about podcasts? Well, I think the question of the podcast is we made it free, right? We started free. And that's true for other kinds of media, but not all of them. And is there going to be a transition that can work there? I agree that I think the Luminary experiment, which is interesting, um, and for people who don't know, Luminary is a podcasting group that acquired or is trying to launch a very large number of very premium podcasts and charge subscription. And the idea is to be a Netflix podcast. And my basic theory on why that's not going to work is that Netflix didn't start with original content. It started with these huge archives. And even now, what people want on Netflix is The Office. Um, that's still their most popular program. And so I just I, I think getting people to move over to pay. But I do think the advertising possibilities in podcasting are huge, in part because I read that the other way than you. The intimacy of podcasting is its great strength. Like that, that's the thing that people want here. And I I don't think podcasting is going to save the media business by any means, but you know, radio is a big business now. Um if podcasting became as good a business as radio has been or was at its zenith, like that's a good business. Right. There will be some big winners. I, I, I do like the Spotify theory uh, recently as, as they invest in uh, podcasting platforms and, and uh, producers to say that everybody else is running toward video. So we're going to run toward audio. And I think that's generally a smart uh, thought process. You know, as we see video shake out, as we see all these uh, tech companies producing more and more uh, original programming, um, hard to see that sustainable in 10 years. Then again, you know, we're talking a lot about the domestic market. There are people every day signing up for Netflix for the first time. Well, heck, there's people every day signing onto the internet for the first time. There is a worldwide market for news that will have some big winners, some, some big business models and some big winners. The thing I always come back to is it's still not easy enough for me to pay when I encounter a paywall uh, when I'm on a website and I come up against that friction point. Um, it's surprising to me that there hasn't been more progress making it easier in, in various ways. Of course, that means you got to do deals with the apples of the world and they're going to want their cut. Yeah. And and I'll say at Vox, we do a lot of those deals and they, and they do want their cut. And, you know, and there's always this tough trade-off. You know, something you said a minute ago, I actually want to go back to that Spotify has good theory here. And Spotify, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but they just acquired Gimlet. And 
I love Gimlet and I'm a Spotify user who actually also loves Spotify. And it made me very depressed um, because my worry is that in the podcasting space, what's going to happen again is that actually the platforms are going to take it. That one way I could see it shaping up to be a multi-billion dollar business is that Spotify and Audible and some others um, who I'm not thinking of, and it could be, you know, hell, it could be Apple, right? They could decide to, to move in that direction. Apple has actually really taken a hands-off approach to letting the podcast industry rise up. I mean, they've been the key player here, and they've decided to not be an aggressive middleman in it, but it could go the other way. And so one possible future you could see of it, which is very much what we've ended up having happen on Facebook and Google and others, is that you do have a real business here and that it is able to support some really great work, but that the amount of it that ends up going to a couple of platforms is just so large that, that all the actual producers are playing for crumbs. Hmm. There's also something to be said about the haves and the have-nots when it applies to podcasts. I say that because, you know, there are these, um, you know, we're having an hour-long plus conversation. There are these in-depth, important conversations happening all over the audio world. And, you know, discovery is still an issue. Um, they are generally more for niche audiences. You know, I'm not sure, for example, how my brothers, you know, will identify what podcasts they want to listen to, they need to listen to today. You know, there, there's, there's really, really, really high quality content being produced for the haves, for the, for the really deeply engaged. And it, it doesn't that further just cause that fragmentation you were describing, where it's not as much production happening for the have-nots in this in this scenario. Yeah, I mean, I I do think I wouldn't call it the haves and the have-nots in this scenario, just for the reason that there is such a fracturing of content that in this world, like everybody can be a have as a consumer. They have the ability. Yes, yes. They have the ability, and I do think I, I mean it does seem to me people find all kinds of things that, that interest them. But I, I take your point that in terms of creating any kind of shared <laughs> foundation and for for democratic politics to take place, like that's harder, right? You're not going to have. I mean, it is the antithesis of the old nightly newscasts. Let me ask you about this more in your own space. When you look at the way young people use YouTube. What do you see coming for cable news? What do you see in the future of the way people will consume video politics? Hmm. The reason I'm bullish fundamentally about cable news, what I think of as a linear stream of live news where breaking news takes precedence and we are talking about the news at other times, is that that, that plays roles in American life that are always going to need to be there. Uh, there is a companionship role. There is a reassurance about uh, what's going on in the world around you role. You know, in, the, in the same way that I have a citizen app on my phone that will let me know why there are sirens around the corner. But if I really want to know more, I probably am still going to turn on the local TV station, turn on the local news for the answers. Um, cable news plays a lot of those kinds of roles on the national level. Um, and it, it'll change shape and form probably, right? The dis distribution will continue to evolve and and hopefully it'll be easier to watch on your phone and and hopefully the mobile alerts will keep getting better. All those sorts of improvements will keep happening. But I would be surprised to see, I think YouTube plays a different role than that. You know, I think people still need at certain times a live feed of breaking news when something really great's happening in the world or when something really terrible is happening in the world. Um, yes, some people will watch the Mars landing on YouTube in 20 or 30 years, right? But you're probably going to want to watch it on the biggest screen possible, and you're probably going to want to hear a trusted voice 
in your ear when it's happening. So let me take the other side of this for a minute. I know. I, I knew you're going to. First, <laughs> um, young people on YouTube, they got trusted voices. They may not be, sometimes they're ones I like, sometimes they're ones I don't. But the problem is not that there aren't trusted voices. It's that they don't trust the mainstream voices. I mean, in part because the whole part of the point of being on YouTube and part of the way you way you run that play is you tell them not to trust the mainstream voices. So I, I do think part of it is that we're just going to see a, a transition in, in who are the mainstream voices. But the other is that, and this goes back to what you said right at the beginning, breaking news may be where cable news really shines. I agree with that. But most cable news is not breaking news. And frankly, most of what cable news calls breaking news is not breaking news in that way. There are moments like the Notre Dame fire or a terrible earthquake or, you know, we can all we can all come up with them. But, you know, turn it on most of the time or walk through an airport and it's political commentary and YouTube does that perfectly well. YouTube is not structured, though, in a way that it's on to, you know, uh, easy, um, you know, with the flip of a switch, you know, it, it, cable news has certain rhythms that make it, I think, more effective, you know, top of the hour, bottom of the hour, you know, there, there's certain there's certain kind of routines to it. I agree with you on the breaking news banners. You know, we got to we got to be careful how much we use them or abuse them. We, we talk about this on my, you know, for my program all the time. We're only going to use it if it's really actually breaking. I, I guess when it comes to YouTube... I haven't seen many applications of it in the in the news world yet, and maybe I'm not looking in the right places. I'm still seeing so much more entertainment and cultural programming on YouTube than I am news. Yes, there are some success stories of the Young Turks on YouTube, uh, but I, to me, those are few and far between, and that most of the wins on YouTube are entertainment-oriented. So I think that's right. I mean, the thing that always strikes me is because I see it for Vox, YouTube is one of our biggest platforms. Um, and so, you know, our average videos get, you know, over a million, which is really striking to me. And the watch times are quite long. But do you believe um, that data? Do you believe oh, I totally a million believe, people? I believe that data a lot better than I believe the Nielsen's data, to be Give honest. Give me a break. Absolutely. Don't they count like 30 seconds of viewership? No, because we can actually see the watch times. Hmm. We have very good data. Okay, well, um, that is more useful. Yes. So I can see how long people are watching, which hmm. um, you you can with some of the Nielsen data. But, you know, often when I was looking at those kind of charts, it was, you know, people were coming in, coming out. Right. Who knew? Well, hey, Carlos, um, when he makes those eight minute long videos, I watch the whole things. Yeah. So, I mean, we have watch times that are striking to me and they look different than, frankly, almost any other platform we're on. Facebook video does not look like that, by the way. Um, but it's just providing a different functionality than cable news. I think we need both. It's part of a balanced diet. Yeah. But so to go back to it for a minute, um, what I see happening there, though, is interesting. Um, I take your point that news is not the main thing there. Um, but you look at something like the Joe Rogan show, which veers into politics quite a lot and gets, you know, routinely two, three, four million views for these multi-hour interviews. Or Ben Shapiro has had a fast rise partially in podcasts, but partially also on YouTube. Um, or someone like ContraPoints. Uh, and so there is stuff emerging there. And I, I think the reason I'm very sensitive to it is, one, I see the data for Vox. But two, when I go do college speaking, like every kid wants to talk to me about stuff they saw on YouTube in a way that they... I'm also on cable news. And people do want to know what Rachel Maddow is like. I mean, they line up to ask me what Brian Stelter is like, of course. But more than any of that, they want to talk about stuff going on on YouTube. Like that is where they're finding us. That is where they're finding something else they want to ask about. And when I go look at the data, um, YouTube is the top place 
teens spend time. It's 34%, then comes Netflix, then TV. Right. It's the default. That's very interesting. It's the default. And, and so you were talking about the um, rhythm of it. And in some ways, the rhythm makes a lot more sense to me. Like my the problem with cable news, the problem with any kind of television is that you get what you get when you're there. Um, whereas there, it's like, if I don't happen to be around at 8 p.m., I can still get the thing I wanted to see. And so I just, I do think it's going to, it has a different rhythm, but I'm not sure that rhythm is worse. In some ways, I think that rhythm is much more flexible. And it's, and, and then this will be the last point I make on this. I think this is something where if a lot of the big players really pushed into it, they might be able to take a huge amount of the audience, but they can't in like a classic innovator's dilemma way because you can't cannibalize the cable subscriptions by putting all of your content on YouTube for free. Like it wouldn't make any sense. Right. Not so all it's, of it. It's I being like left to all these other people. Clips, right? Yeah, you we guys do. do. Put up clips and, and those do get a, a, a decent audience. Yeah. I am struck when my two-year-old is using YouTube and she is going through the videos of Sesame Street. How quickly the autoplay, the, you know, the dreaded, uh, what, what do they call that? The, the Is it a carousel? What do they call the list of the next videos? How, oh, yeah, I don't know. How quickly it moves from high-quality PBS, HBO-produced content into crap, into, you know, amateur videos, amateur versions of Sesame Street. This is not, you know, creepy uh, stuff, but it's it's amateur. It's citizen produced. And I am desperate for a button on YouTube that says, just give me the real stuff. Just give me the real production. Just give me only the real high quality stuff. And I'm I'm shocked by the lack of development at YouTube of features that create a safer, higher quality, more curated space. I get it. It's not what YouTube was born about. It's not why it exists. But um, I guess call me old fashioned, Ezra. I still want the good. I, want, I still want the good stuff. I still want the. I still want the high quality. I still want the edited. I still want the produced. Uh, and and I, and I maybe that's why I, I lean more toward the television side than the online video side. But, but um, this is why my hair's on fire about this. I, I it's why I bring it up to, to folks like you because, because other people I'm aren't like me, right? They don't no. care if it's. Yeah, well, I guess a bit, but I'm not even sure people aren't like you. It's just the way the thing is built now. I think the most important audience in the country, arguably, is YouTube. Like that is like the next generation of of news consumers. Mm. Hey, look, my and daughter I doesn't think, seem to care about the amateur videos. Only I do. <laughs> and I think they're getting radicalized. I think they're getting a lot of crap. I think they're getting like the the extremism in the algorithm. And I had a great podcast with Zainab Tufetsky about this. Um, really worries me. And it, it's one reason I don't ask about YouTube just because of the business side of it. And we're not on YouTube just because of the business side of it. In part, I think YouTube is a really, really, really important platform, like important in a journalistically moral sense. And we need to, as an industry, take it more seriously. Right. If you're not there providing accurate information, then then the only videos there are the, are the, are the nonsense. I had a really interesting experience recently on a college campus uh, in the way that you were describing people coming up to you asking questions from what they've seen on YouTube. I certainly experienced the same thing. Uh, and, and oftentimes the questions I'm getting, you, you know, if, they, if they've watched an InfoWars video or they've read a Newsbuster story about me, you know, they're describing not Brian Selter, they're describing an alternative universe version of me that is uh, out to get them, that is, you know, uh, evil. And it's always helpful to get to debunk the the crap that they've read or seen online. But I met Kent State a couple months ago, and two InfoWars reporters are there. One is live streaming, one is taping for later. They both come up, they start peppering me with questions. And it was a, I loved the opportunity to try to take the crazy conspiracy stuff head on and try to debunk it, try to address it, try to at least explain my perspective. Uh, 
you know, um, against their conspiracy theories about how, you know, CNN is in bed with Robert Mueller, you know, just the, the crazy stuff that comes out of them every day. And what happened is they posted these videos to YouTube. And then almost every day now, I get an email from somebody who says, uh, I watched you on YouTube. I watched you, uh, you know, get interviewed by InfoWars. Um, and I actually respect you a little bit now. Actually, I actually like you a little bit now. You, you, you were willing to answer their questions. You, you were willing to, to – and, you know, I, I don't think this is representative of anything much bigger. But at least anecdotally, I wonder if I have to be doing more of that, <laughs> you know, res actually responding to the, to the, to the lies. Yeah, I, th I think this is a – it's a hard space for time management reasons. <laughs> I, I mean this. I mean this very seriously. That I think about this a lot, and you know, there are debates with you know people have and people in my own organization have about what to go on and what you should platform and not platform and who you should engage with. But I tend to lean onto the side of engagement, particularly when you're able to talk to an audience that isn't your own. Um, I think it's important to try to talk to audiences that aren't your own. And but the problem is, like, you can spend forever you know, trying to play whack-a-mole with like random sites that are out to get you. Right. It's and great that I had no... 50 people email me, but that's 50 people. Yeah. Right. And then there's no time yeah. to do your own journalism. Um, right. And so I think, I, and that's why I, I think, but these are ecosystems. And I, you know, particularly when you're dealing with, you know, big players and like whole new ecosystems like YouTube, that's why I think the, the engagement is important. Um, that feeling of distance people have is not a good feeling. Um, and it's part. Of, I think it, it's getting worse and worse. You know, I'm I'm not a huge fan of all these consumer surveys and all the stuff about how Gen Z loves authenticity. But there's something to the way that um, there's something to the aesthetic that every new generation develops in its own media. And you know, cable news is different than it was 20 years ago. You, you know, you think about sort of the lineage coming down. You were talking about the the monologues, and I mean, that's a lineage coming in a very real way from Keith Olbermann, then to Rachel Maddow, then spreading through MSNBC primetime, and now it's a norm. Um, and these things change, like what they want, what what people want from us changes, and um, understanding and being able to operate within an aesthetic that is maybe not the one that we initially emerged in is really important. Yeah, that, that experience of holding the phone up to your face in a very close-up setting uh, and, and talking to the camera is something that I think, um, let me take it out of cable news, I think a lot of local TV anchors would be repelled by that thought, you know, of, of, of making, a, making a, a vlog, a vlog, right? Um, and yet, you're right, especially younger people connect more to that look, to that aesthetic than, uh, than, than the, the current audience that... Both cable and local news is primed to uh, to try to reach. You know, we're, we're well aware that cable news skews older. You know, the, the focus is on the twenty five to fifty four demo, um, but it skews older than that, and that completely leaves folks under twenty five out of that conversation. Uh, in terms of you know who is cable news designed for? Who who is the target audience? Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kids' shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 
One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Support for this show comes from Indeed. Imagine the perfect employee. Let's call her Jackie. Jackie is professional yet relaxed, punctual, friendly, meets deadlines, and just makes your job easier overall. But the search for Jackie can be long and tedious, especially when you have so many other things on your plate. Indeed wants to help you find your next Jackie. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day. So their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. That means they can better connect you with your Jackie. And listeners of this show can get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and say you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You talked about wanting to see things get built. If you were building something today, where would you build it? What platform? I don't have a great answer. I think I would rather have it be as as much outside Facebook or Twitter or Google as possible. Uh, I don't know if that would be possible, right? Um, I, I oftentimes think that uh, you know, in a, in a scenario where um, uh, the New York Times and CNN hadn't happened for me, then I would uh, I would still be blogging. And I guess at this point, the blog would be behind a subscription paywall, and uh, hopefully not dependent on the social networks for traffic. Uh, but I don't know how it would have played out for me. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what that business would have turned into. Do you think it? You know, you and I both took a blogging side route into journalism, and you know now have these, uh, you know, much more mainstream validated positions. Do you think the the route we took or some modern version of it is still open? I hope it is, and I think it is. I certainly get, you know, when we're hiring for producers. Resumes that are, you know, uh, non-traditional or or people looking to go through side doors as opposed to front doors. I do think that's happening, but I also have to kind of confess. I think what was going on in the mid two thousands is is so different than what it uh, what's going on today. Don't you think it's a little bit different than uh, than? I think it is different. Look, I think that every new medium that emerges, there's a period of wild westness in it, where people can kind of start in the amateur space and then like ride the wave as it professionalizes. I think we did that in blogging, but I think a lot of people have done that in podcasting. I think people are doing it on YouTube even as we speak, Mm. but it's when it all becomes a business model that that becomes harder. Mm. And I think that that transition to business models is happening faster. And I do worry that some of the places, I mean, I think a lot of people do this on Twitter, right? I think Twitter has been a really good place for people to get noticed, but I don't always think it's a great incentive structure in which for people to build their careers. And so I do wonder, one of the really good things that happened to me was that there was a real hybrid approach that I could take. Um, and so I was a blogger, but then I like got hired by a magazine and had to learn to report. And you know, a lot of my professional life has been about 
finding a synthesis between the skills I developed outside the system and the skills I've learned inside the system and trying to take them to create something that honored hopefully the best of both. And you know, some days you succeed and some days you fail. So I think the question is not whether or not the routes are closed, but whether or not there's the ability to kind of keep bouncing between them and keep finding the best in them. I hope so. I, I just don't know. I, I, don't, I don't trust also my own ability to know, right? Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting too old to know what, the, <laughs> what, it, what it looks like from a, from a radically different vantage point. Right, right. Maybe the old times weren't as great as I remember them either, right? right. No, they were the only good time in media ever, was like ever? <laughs> blogging. I'm just always trying to, you know, I think I'm as hungry now as I was then. And I think there's always room you know, for for that kind of young journalist, whether that that means they're they're twenty one out of college or whether they're thirty one and getting in the industry for the first time, to 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 enter a newsroom and be hungrier than anybody else and work the way up. I, th I think that still works. I think that's true, uh, no matter the medium. Right now, there are still ways to stand out and uh, and produce a really remarkable journalism, even even in a time when these newsrooms are under all sorts of pressures, and even at a time when. Uh, we've been declared the enemies of, of the people. I think that's a good place to come to a close here. So let me ask you the, the question we always end on, which is what are three books you'd recommend to the audience that have influenced you that you think others should read? Well, the first one is brand new. Uh, it's the most recent book I read, um, American Moonshot by Douglas Brinkley. Uh, Brinkley's done so many books. This is, this is his most recent. It's about JFK and the space race culminating in Apollo 11. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of rediscovering my amateur space buff uh, uh, part of me. So, so I loved that recently. Um, there's, there's a couple that are in my office at CNN that, that I always uh, end up referring back to. One is The Culture of Fear by Barry Glasner. It's from many years ago. But it's about why people are afraid of the wrong things. And it relates to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, the kind of worst temptations of, of news to, to want to uh, terrify people. Um, and, uh, and, and he was diagnosed in that a long time ago. Uh, the third one is, um, you know, kind of right along uh, this cable news conversation too, uh, Echo Chamber. Um, it's by Kathleen Hall Jameson and Joseph Capella. It's also a little bit old. It's, it's from uh, about, I think about 10 years ago. But she was writing about, uh, she, she and Joseph were writing about Rush Limbaugh as the centerpiece of this book about the conservative media ecosystem. And I feel like, I don't know what you think, I feel like there's so much focus now on the impact of the Fox feedback loop and, and the echo chamber on the right. But this book was really honing in on the roots of it, uh, you know, with, with talk radio. So I appreciate that one as well. Brian Stelter, thank you very much. Thank you. All right, that's the show. Something I've been reflecting on after this conversation. Uh, Something I talk a lot about on this show is the idea that things can be both ways at once. And when I think back to how the media was 15 years ago when I entered it, we're so much better. I mean, the ability to get great coverage of policy, of politics, um, to, to have coverage about elections is based on real data, not just reporter impressions. Uh, to get international coverage, it is being done internationally, not just from a, a bureau that, you know, cycling people in and out from here, but from from actual, you know, overseas publications. It's remarkable. And then at the same time, the amount of crap is so much larger. We got so much better and worse at the same time. And so the ability to get great journalism, there's never been anything like it, not like there is today, but also the ability to be terribly misinformed by journalism or to be totally confused by the torrent of completely contradictory information, it's pretty high too. I mean, it, I think it's easier than it was when I was coming in. 
And so, I don't know. I don't know what to make of the ways in which things get so much better and so much worse simultaneously. Uh, I don't think journalism is in a great place. I think that the amount of pressure that the changes in the business model and the changes, as importantly, in the feedback model are pushing on us has done more damage than we can always admit, um, particularly being inside the system. I think it's often hard for us to realize like how much we are shaped by these structures and incentives around us. But I also think that it's possible that you know this is a, a lag as new things come online and as new techniques and approaches get integrated and, and the things will you know, continue to get better and particularly the discoverability and the returns to the better stuff will increase. So that's the question. Are we in a culling phase where there's been a thousand flowers blooming or are we just in a fracturing phase? And I don't know the answer to it. So thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering to Jeffrey Geld for producing, to Brian Stelter, of course, for being here and, and fielding those questions, and to all of you for being part of this show, which I hope is making things a little bit better. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. <laughs>